my favorite podcasts is called The Holy Post. Uh, if you're familiar with VeggieTales, Phil Vischer is the guy who started VeggieTales, and he, it's his podcast. And uh, he, there's several hosts on the podcast, and one of them is a woman named Christian Taylor. And uh, Phil Vischer is, you know, he's kind of a egghead kind of guy, and the other guy in the, on the podcast is a pastor. And, and Christian's just uh, a godly woman who, who loves Jesus and is a friend of theirs. And very often, the two men will get wrapped up in some big, heady, theological kind of discussion, and Christian will say, okay, but what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with the church at large? What does that have to do with just Christians on the ground? And it's a really good uh, corrective to some uh, tendencies that, that many of us maybe have, some of us at least, to, to kind of live with our heads in the clouds and in, in theoretical things. And last week, we uh, looked at verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1, which we called a hymn, that, that this is a, was a poem that is describing who Jesus is. We said that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And I won't read the whole thing. You can read it later. But it's a very big vision of Jesus. And we said that Jesus is, he's, uh, he creates the universe and he sustains the universe and he reconciles the universe to himself. And these are all very big theological ideas. And in the next couple verses, though, our, our passage today, what Paul is going to do is he is going to answer the question, okay, yeah, but what does that have to do with me? He's going to take the big ideas of the Christ hymn and he's going to bring them down to the ground for the Colossians to understand a little bit more personally what these ideas have to do with them. And as we continue through this letter, and, and I'll try to remind us of this as we go, um, our tendency as Americans, as Christians who own Bibles, and, and maybe you have a quiet time, you, you go off into a room and open your Bible every day and you read a little bit of it. When we read the epistles, we read the word you all the time. And so we, we read that word and we read you and, and we think me, Jesus is speaking to me. And I don't want to discount that Jesus is speaking to you in your quiet time. I believe that he does that. But the reality is all of the yous, or at least the vast majority of the yous in this letter are plural. Paul is talking to a gathered group of people about their, uh, their, their joint salvation and it's important that we keep this in mind as we internalize the things that he's saying, that he's speaking to us in some sense on a personal level, but more appropriately, he's speaking to us as the people of God. So this morning, I, Paul is going to take a, he's going to begin to shape his argument about what Christ has done for us in a, in a more personal level. And I want to take a look at three things that Christ has done. Paul says that, that we were alienated from Christ. And then he's going to say, but we are reconciled to Christ. And thirdly, he's going to remind us that we must trust in Christ. We were alienated from Christ we are reconciled to Christ, but we must trust in Christ. 
So verse 21 says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. The word hostile there could also be translated enemy. At one time, we were all enemies of God. And, and he said that this is, this is something that starts in our minds. It doesn't start in the way we treat people. It starts in who we are on the inside. The word mind is, is not just our head, but our heart, our person. See, in order to make someone your enemy, you have to begin in your mind. Your actions are going to follow your heart. Uh, S.L.A. Marshall was an uh, army general, I believe. He might not have been a general. He was an officer of some kind uh, who did a major study in World War II. And he interviewed thousands and thousands of uh, soldiers. And he found out that about 10 to 20% of the riflemen in World War II fired their weapons at exposed enemy soldiers. There's a, a Japanese or a German soldier just out in the open and 80 to 85% of the time, the riflemen just, just wouldn't fire. They, they, they had the opportunity, they had the weapon, every, they had a job to do, and they, they wouldn't do it. And as he, as he interviewed these soldiers, what he recognized is that somewhere deep inside of us, we have this innate sense that we're, we shouldn't kill people. That's a good thing. That's a God-given thing. And so his research led the army and then the other branches of the armed forces to decide, okay, if we're going to have better soldiers, we need to get rid of that. And so over the process of many years, they redesigned soldiers' training to dehumanize the enemy in their minds. They went from circular bullseyes on the firing range to silhouettes of human beings. They they showed propaganda footage of the enemy in, in really dehumanizing ways, and they trained a generation of soldiers to the, by the time we got to the Vietnam War, 95% of soldiers were taking the shot. But the reason they were doing that is because they had been formed to create an enemy in their mind. And once they had created that enemy in their mind, they could attack that enemy with their actions. We see the same thing in the foundation of our country when, when the economic engine of the United States is slavery. And, and something about us, something about us as Christian people informed by Scripture go, you know, that doesn't seem right to me. And so what we had to do is we had to create a system where African-American people were only three-fifths human in our legal system. And so over years and years and years of doing economic policy with the assumption of less than human people, we could do evil things because we had created an enemy in our mind. Right now, we're seeing this in Russia. Vladimir Putin is talking about his invasion of Ukraine, and he's talking about how he's going into the country that's filled with neo-Nazis to liberate the people. And this is how he is creating an environment and hopefully, in his mind, creating soldiers that are willing to go in and commit horrible deeds because they have created an enemy in their mind. And we even do this personally. If, if you want to treat someone as an enemy, you need to dehumanize them in your mind. Maybe you say that they're, they're part of an agenda. Or maybe, to, to borrow a phrase from a couple of years ago, they're 
They're a basket of deplorables. Whatever, whatever, the, whatever it is, whatever you have to do, you have to create a place in your heart, in your mind, where you can dehumanize that person so that you have a free conscience to pursue evil action. So when it comes to God, our hostility with God, it begins in our hearts and our minds. We are, we are born with this built-in brokenness, this built-in tendency to sin, to withdraw from truth, from love, and from our creator and king. But then we're born into a world that's filled with things that are trying to convince us that God is our enemy. And see, so we, don't, we don't dehumanize God, we de-God God. D.A. Carson says, the heart of sin is idolatry itself. It is the de-godding of God. It is the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker and saying, in effect, if you do not see things my way, I'll make my own gods. I'll be my own God. Our tendency internally towards pride and rebellion is fueled by thousands of messages in the world that condition us to see God as something less than he is. Maybe he's, you know, God's just like me. He, he, he has the same interests as me. He has the same desires as me. He would never be upset at me for anything that I wanted to do because he's just like me. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he, he just doesn't have an opinion about the way I live my life. He's out doing something else in the world. Maybe God, whatever that means, is just some force or energy that, with no specific personal will. Maybe God doesn't exist at all. These are just some of the ways that we, as a human race, convince ourselves that God isn't really God. And we do this in our hearts and our minds before we do it in our actions. For us to live our lives willfully ignoring God's character and command harming ourselves and others with our actions and spoiling the world around us, we first have to take God off of his throne in our hearts and our minds. We have to de-God God. And this is the condition that Paul says we once were in. And friends, if, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the position that Paul says you are in currently. But listen to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians are kind of like sister letters. Paul wrote them in a very similar time and they have very similar themes. Ephesians chapter 2, we read, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. The word excluded in Ephesians is the same word as alienated in Colossians. So what Paul is saying here is that we're not just alienated from God in our sinful state, we're also alienated from the people of God. The Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, they lived outside of relationship with God. God had come through their father Abraham and, and, and spoken to him and uh, created this people that he redeemed from Egypt. That's the, the story of the Old Testament. He had this special relationship with them. And the Gentiles, most all of us, didn't have that opportunity. We lived outside of the relationship with God, but also outside of the community of God's people. 
And I think what Paul would say is that those two things go together. There is no such thing as a Christian, at least the way the Bible talks about it, outside of the church. A church father in the third century named Cyprian said, no one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. And at the time, Cyprian was arguing for a single unified church, uh, and he was arguing against splinter groups, what we might call denominations. If you look around today, we've, we've not been faithful to that call as a, as a body of Christ. There are thousands and thousands of splinter groups of Christians. We live in a very different world than Cyprian did, arguing for a singular church. It's my hope that that kind of unity might be fostered, but it's a long, hard work that would only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Cyprian would also have looked at the man or the woman who says, I am a Christian, I claim the name of Jesus, but I do not deeply connect myself to a local community of Christians. He would look at that person as equally disturbing. How can you be a Christian if you are not a part of the church? And I want to I be very kind and very careful this morning because many of us have been hurt, some of us very deeply by Christians, specifically leaders in the church. And, and I, I know from the stories that I've heard from some of you that this has caused you to pull back from the community of God's people. And I'm, I'm really grateful that for some of us in this room, Revelation Church has become a place of healing a place where you've been able to slowly step back into community, to to learn to trust God's people again. And I want to acknowledge that that pain and that process is real. I don't want to minimize that. And I also want to say that that maybe there's some of you today that that are kind of doing the like, oh man, so-and-so really needs to hear this. They're not here. They need to get back into church. And I appreciate that. But the exhortation to be deeply connected to the community of God's people is for all of us because we all have the tendency when we are hurt or uncomfortable to dehumanize and withdraw. The church is just a bunch of hypocrites. The church abuses authority, right? These are messages that we hear often today. Sometimes those messages are true, right? But if you're here and you're like, man, I, I just love my church. It's so great. These people in this place and everything about it is so awesome. Like, I guarantee you that if you haven't been hurt by me or someone else at Revelation Church, yet you will be. It's, it's just a matter of time because I'm a broken person and you're all broken people, no offense. And, and we, we hurt one another. It's just the way... It works when we still struggle with sin. So now, if if you're like, man, I just can't even imagine that. Like, well, praise God. But now is the time to purpose in your heart that when you are hurt by someone in the church, that you're not going to withdraw. I was was at a wedding on Saturday, and um, wedding vows are so cool because they do the, you know, the, the, the richer or poorer, sickness or health. Why do they, why do they have, have to bring that kind of downer language into a party? 
Because at a wedding, everybody is so good, right? Everybody's on, on cloud nine. We're getting married. Why sickness, sickness and poverty and, and, and just don't talk about that. But, but the thing is, the decision that you make about how you're going to handle those situations, you need to make that ahead of time. When everything's good, when, when, the, when the relationship is fresh and new, to commit in your heart that, yeah, when it gets bad, because it's going to get bad, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to work it through. And I think the same thing applies to the people of God. If it's, if it's good for you right now, if, if this community is life-giving and refreshing and you're making deepening relationships and you're growing in your faith, praise God for that. But there will come a time where someone will hurt your feelings, where you'll be misunderstood, where things won't go the way you wanted them to go. And, and we all have an opportunity right now to decide how we're going to move into those difficult situations. And then before we move on about the unity of the church, I, I want to do one more thing. And I don't do this very often. I, I want to talk to the, the live stream. And I, I don't, I don't often talk to the live stream because we are uh, working on a, a, a community of God's people, not an internet ministry. And, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for the live stream. We started doing it at COVID. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you're sick today, if you're on vacation, uh, maybe you're new in town and, and you're just checking out churches and it's easier to get on the internet and, and watch than it is to actually visit and put yourself out there. I get that and praise God for that. But but if you're watching it because you've, you've disconnected yourself from the people of God and your interaction with the church has just become watching a theological talk once a week in your pajamas and it's because relationships are hard or, or because someone hurt your feelings or, or maybe if you're honest, you've just gotten lazy. Like as humbly as I can, I want to say like that's, that's dangerously close to the kind of person Paul is describing as being alienated from God here. Now, I don't want to say that you're not a Christian, but the person that disconnects themselves on a permanent basis from God's people is living a life that looks just like someone who is outside the kingdom of Christ. You aren't here on a regular basis experiencing the grace of God through the bread and the cup, through the prayers of God's people for you. You aren't working out your spiritual gifts in the community of God's people and allowing other people's spiritual gifts to interact with you. And the powers of darkness love that you are in this place. And if that's you this morning, if, you, if you've allowed that to become a habit, I would encourage you, I would beg you to reconsider the habits that you are allowing to be formed in your life and to reconnect deeply with God's people. Paul says, we were once alienated and hostile in our minds, expressed in our evil actions. We were alienated from Christ. But there's good news. He says, we are reconciled to Christ. Look at verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So what does that reconciliation look like? I've got a couple things. First of all, it is physical. We've been reconciled through Jesus' physical body. 
Sam Albury says, the problems we experience with our body were never ultimately going to be solved by our body. We may be able to ameliorate some aspects of our bodily brokenness. We can cure some ills and ease some pains, but we cannot fix what has been broken. The only hope for us is the body of Jesus, broken fully and finally for us. And this is something that we need to have a really strong grasp of because our culture has shaped us in really unhelpful ways. Our future is not some ethereal, disembodied spiritual life floating on the clouds, playing a harp. The kingdom of God is physical. It's remade. It's renewed. It's perfect. It's different. But it has a significant continuity to the physical life that we have now. Jesus is our model in this. He goes before us in resurrection. And when we see his resurrected body in the scriptures, it is physical. He says, touch me. He eats food. As you imagine your future, imagine it with the sunshine and the birds and the trees and real tangible relationships because that's the kind of world that God created in the beginning and that's the kind of world that he is not going to give up on. Christ's physical death will bring us new physical life. But secondly, it's, it's substitutionary. The son, the second person of the eternal trinity, he becomes the God-man, a perfect human who lives a life we ought to live but can't. Our sin, it subjects us to death, and Jesus dies in our place. Scott McKnight says, Jesus' physical body was crucified, and it was that embodied death that reconciled. God does not reconcile simply by choosing to reconcile or by considering someone reconciled, but by an act on the plane of history. In Jesus' fleshly body, the whole of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, is represented, dies, and can be raised in the resurrection body of eternity. Jesus takes our place on the cross. There's a lot of argument in, in the theology world right now about like, why did Jesus actually go to the cross? And, and some would say that Jesus went to the cross to, to deliver us from the powers of darkness and to defeat death. And others would say that he came to, to ransom humanity. Others would say, well, he came as an example of how we were supposed to live. And, and I would say that all of those things are true. But Jesus' death throughout the New Testament is, descri is described as substitution. He came to take our place. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place. He took our sin on himself and his grace gives us the goodness of God that we don't naturally possess. So Jesus' reconciliation is physical, it is substitution, and it is also cleansing. We have, a, we have a golden doodle named Eustace. He's about 60-something pounds. He's a big dog. And uh, he's just the nicest dog. 
And early on, when he was much smaller, we made a mistake. We started letting him on the couch because he was a cute puppy. And now he's a year old and he's a giant hairy dog and he still gets to get on the couch. And that's usually fine, except when he's like been out in the mud or like eaten something nasty or stepped in something nasty or rolled in something nasty. It's just all kinds of nasty things that he finds, he gets a kick out of it. He runs in the house and he wants to jump on the couch and you just go, oh God, get off the couch. And you push him off and he looks and he's like, what's the deal? Right? Like I, I always get to be on the couch and you won't let me on the couch. It's because you're dirty. I don't want you on my couch. See, the reality is, is that God lives in a perfect place. God is a perfect being. He has a perfect world. And, and all throughout, if, if, you're, if you're doing your Bible reading plan and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, what is this about? It's all about the perfect world that God lives in. And he says, you know what? I don't, I don't want my couch dirty. I don't, I don't want the place that I live to stink with sin. But just like our family in Eustace, like we, we do actually kind of want him on the couch. So what do we have to do? Well, we have to, we have to bathe him. We have to wash him. We have to clean him because we're not content with just banishing him to the backyard to be filthy. We want him with us. And God is the same way. God is holy. God is perfect. God is blameless. And he wants us with him. But we're a mess. We're filthy. We're covered in sin. And Jesus' reconciliation makes us holy and blameless. These terms go all the way back to the Old Testament and how you create an environment that is fit for God to dwell these are terms that are used when the scriptures talk about the temple and a priest's ability to be in the presence of God. And if we're going to be presented to God, if we are going to be invited into God's presence, we have to be cleansed. And Jesus' blood is the method by which that cleansing happens. In the book of Hebrews chapter 9, we read, For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled those who were defiled, sanctifying for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? So this morning, Christian, you have been cleansed. You have been cleansed made clean. If you, if you look at things that you've done, if you look at things that you've been, if you have regrets that you carry, if you feel a shame that keeps you from believing that Christ is for you, you are believing lies because Jesus has made you clean. And we can rejoice in that. We've been invited into his presence, cleansed from sin. Jesus' reconciliation 
is also justice. We read the word faultless in verse 22. Faultless is a legal term. We aren't just healed by the grace of God through Jesus on the cross. We aren't just cleaned by the blood of Jesus, but the legal judgment against us has been paid. Sin is a crime against the holiness of God, and it deserves judgment. The wages of sin, the thing that we earn from sin is death. And we have a hard time with this, some of us, because we don't really think sin is as bad as it is, and we don't really think God is as good as he is. But sin is a crime. And in Christ, we are made innocent. Scott McKnight again, the Colossians at the final resurrection and following the full declaration of their righteousness and God's judgment will be fashioned anew for life in the kingdom. For this to occur, they will be holy as God is holy and they will no longer be trapped in sinful patterns or standing under the condemning judgment of God. And so maybe, maybe you're here and you're, you're thinking, you're hearing about all of the goodness of being reconciled with Christ and made new and cleansed and declared innocent. And you're thinking like, well, what if I'm not good enough? What if I, what if I don't measure up? A couple of years ago, we built a shed in our backyard. And... Um, it's not, a, it's not a big building, but it, it's a building that we made from scratch. It was, it was an achievement. <laughs> and uh, one of the walls, it's 20 feet long, and it had a bunch of headers in it for windows and doors and stuff. And, and um, I was having a hard time lifting it. And my daughter, Nora, who was seven at the time, she came running up to me and goes, Dad, don't worry, I got this. And she went down to lift it, and she couldn't lift it either. I had to get like three neighbors to help me. It was heavy. But see, in Nora's mind, there was a task, and it was a small task. And for some reason, you know, Dad is old, he's weak, he can't get it done, but she could do it. She misunderstood the size of the task pretty, pretty majorly. And if you hear the good news of the gospel in Jesus, that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been cleansed and made new, and God loves you and welcomes you into his family, and you're like, well, I don't know if I'm good enough, or maybe I don't measure up, or I haven't done enough things. Like, you are m- misunderstanding the scope of the task at hand. I want to remind you of verse 19, which we looked at last week. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus' project of reconciliation is universal. It's cosmic. It's heaven and earth and powers and principalities and all of the cosmic order is reconciled through Christ, and it's so much bigger than you. He doesn't need your help for any of that 
So why would he need your help to reconcile your own life to him? To think that you just, you got to throw in a little bit and just add a little bit of your muscle to get it done. That's just silly. This project that Jesus is on, he's got it. All of it. And he will make sure that it is done in your life. We were, we were alienated from Christ, but we are reconciled to Christ. And all that we're called to do is trust in Christ. Look at verse 23. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So Paul gives us this this news of, of reconciliation that we have been made new. But then he tacks on this warning. He says, if, if you remain, if you're not shifted away, Paul gives us a warning. He says, don't leave the gospel. Don't let go of Jesus. Don't stop trusting in Christ. So this generates all kinds of questions, right? So so if there's an if, is it, is it possible to lose your salvation? Is it possible that after you've become a Christian, you can decide not to be a Christian anymore? And we won't get too deep into it, but there's classically two camps in the, in the Protestant world, the, the Arminian camp and the Calvinist camp. And maybe you've heard these words, maybe you know these arguments. The Arminians would say, yeah, you can decide to stop being a Christian, it's not, not, by, not by committing a particular sin or, or like accidentally tripping and losing your salvation, but saying, you know what, Jesus, I'm out. I don't want you anymore. I'm going to go pledge my allegiance to a different God, or I'm going to consider myself as my own God. I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And, and an Arminian would say that that's your free choice. Uh, Michael Heiser says it like this. He says, there are no Baal worshipers in heaven. For someone to trust in Christ and then decide, no, I'm not going to trust in Christ anymore. I'm going to go trust in another God. Nobody like that is going to be in the kingdom. That person has walked away from the gospel. The Calvinist position, on the other hand, would say, no, someone who has been given life by Christ, who was once dead in trespasses and sins, has been made alive in Christ. They've been made alive in Christ. The person that seems to be a Christian that rejects the gospel, leaves the faith, either they are a Christian and they will be pursued by the Holy Spirit and brought back, or they were never truly his to begin with. Wayne Grudem says it this way, those who continue in the faith show thereby that they are genuine believers, but those who do not continue in the faith show that there was no genuine faith in their hearts in the first place. Now, personally, I don't find this particular debate about Calvinism and Arminianism super interesting. So, um, what I want to draw our attention to is the point, which is, regardless of how you understand the mechanics of how salvation works, how it plays out, Paul's warning here is real. Stay connected to Christ and the hope of the gospel. 
We don't, we don't need to spend time like deciding whether Christians walk away from their salvation or they were never saved in the first place or any of that. I mean, maybe it's worth talking about, but not today. What Paul is telling us is take your identity as a Christian seriously. It's important. David Powell says this way, the believer's continuous walk in the gospel is the condition of, but not the basis for Christ's presentation of them. We are not saved by things that we do. We are not saved by behaviors that we express. We are called to trust in Jesus, in his work on our behalf. Pastor John Corson, who is an old Calvary Chapel pastor says this in his Colossians commentary, I cannot in good conscience assure a person who walked forward at a crusade 20 years ago or who was baptized six summers ago but has not kept on with the Lord that he will, presented, he will be presented to the Father as being holy and blameless. See, the warning for Paul is real. Like if you, if you step out and commit your life to Christ and then change your mind, It's a serious thing. And he, he warns us and, and pleads with us, stay connected to Jesus. Stay connected to the gospel. Don't wander off. And this doesn't mean that we're sinless. This doesn't mean that we never have doubts. But it does mean that if you are a Christian, you trust and you follow Jesus above every other allegiance you have. This section ends with a sobering warning and a hopeful invitation to be part of something so much bigger than yourself. Let me read 23 again. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and you are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. We get... We get bogged down with things all the time that that we are convinced are important. The stress of our our jobs, our money problems, relational strife, and and those things are important. But, But Paul says here that the gospel, the message of good news about Jesus has been proclaimed to the whole of creation. And I don't think what he's saying is that everyone on the planet has heard the news about Jesus. But what he is saying is that the story of God in Christ is cosmic in its value. I don't know if this happens anymore, but a couple generations ago, before we all had smartphones and the internet, there were just a couple channels on TV. And if something happened, some big catastrophe happened, and the president of the United States needed to get a message to the country, he'd fire up the TV cameras in the Oval Office, and all of the networks would cut their programming and switch to the president. Now, that's not a guarantee that every American heard the president's message, but it is an example of how important the president thinks his message is. He's going to speak for whatever reason, and he's going to, on every radio station and every TV station, he's going to get that message out to the whole country because it's that important. 
And I think that's what Paul is saying here, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that important. It is worldwide. Michael Knowles writes, the choice of becoming a follower of Jesus involves more than simply a different lifestyle, attitude, or understanding. Far more profoundly, choosing to follow Jesus involves a choice between different visions of reality itself. Do we believe that when we identify with Christ? Is Jesus just like a help so that we can raise our kids better? Or so that we, you know, we don't want to swear as much. Or maybe we think, you know, if I become a Christian, my finances will work themselves out. That's not true. The message of the gospel is so much bigger than that. It is worldwide and affects every person in the creation. And this is the reality that we have been invited into. We, all of us, were alienated from Christ. But in Christ, we are reconciled. We are brought back into relationship with him. And we're just, we're called to trust in his power, in his goodness, in his grace for us. So as we close, I just want to encourage us to to be a people that encourage one another to see this and live this out in our lives. To be people who have eyes to see a different kind of reality. A reality where King Jesus is on the throne. Where God is sovereign over all things. Where the spirit of Christ inside of us is transforming us into the image of the Son day by day by day. That we would take that seriously. And when Paul says that this is so important, it's gone out to the whole of creation, that we would believe that and live our lives accordingly. Let's do a couple questions. Hmm. Whoa. That's a big, loud noise. Okay, this says, I have family members that have removed themselves from the physical church due to multiple bad experiences and have attended church exclusively through watching online for two years now. How can I encourage them to attend church physically? Well, first of all, very gently. Um, I, th- I think it's probably true that, that healing... The, 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 kind of, the kind of time and care it takes to heal is probably analogous to the kind of time it takes to hurt. You know, people don't, people don't walk into a church on week one and get hurt and leave, usually. They, they commit themselves to a body for years and years and years. And then when something awful happens and they leave... There's a lot of wounding there. So I would say that to recognize that, that that kind of healing might take a long time because the process building up to the hurt probably took a long time too. But as far as encouragement goes, there's just so much beautiful, life-giving presence that the church has for, his, for its people. And if, 
you know, like if, if you're, if you live in North Idaho and, and it's cold and dreary and winter for long enough, at least in my experience, I, I kind of forget what the sun feels like. I kind of forget the warmth. I, I, I kind of forget just like, you know, wearing a t-shirt, not being cold, like that feeling. And if we remove ourselves from the, the means of grace that Jesus has provided for our wholeness in the body of Christ, I think we can just slowly over time become numb to that and, and not, not even remember the goodness of God's people, the goodness of singing as a body, the goodness of the communion meal. And if you have family that you want to encourage and not like um, shame, which, you know, don't do that, I, I would just maybe bring that up. Maybe in your own experience, man, church was so good today. We had a potluck, and I just, I, the presence of God was so rich when we sang. Um, I, just, I just love taking communion with God's people. And maybe that'll spur some conversations and, and give them a reminder of the things that they have in their hurt abandoned. What apologetic resources would you recommend for building a firmer foundation of faith? That's a good one. Um, I really like Tim Keller's books. Uh, the Reason for God and The Meaning of God are both really great. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor from New York and has done ministry for like 30 years in Manhattan, talking with all kinds of secularly-minded people. So if you're looking for more of a... Um, uh, well-reasoned understanding of the faith. Uh, his books kind of talk about um, kind of factual stuff about the resurrection and the, um, the, the, well, how we can trust Scripture and things like that. And then the other book is more about uh, philosophical reasons why uh, belief in God in general and then belief in Christ specifically are helpful. Um, there's also a, uh, there's some really good stuff by, depending on who you are, either William Lane Craig, who is, his, he's a pretty heady philosopher kind of guy. There's a guy named Frank Turek who has an apologetics ministry, does a lot of video work that's great. Um, and there's probably a thousand of them. Um, what's his name? Um, it's Josh McDowell's son's name. Sean? Yeah, I don't know. Look him up. He's got a good ministry as well. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of really good resources out there. Those are some just a small sampling. Um, for some of us, I was talking with I was talking with Jackson about this a couple of days ago. For some of us, like the the historicity of the gospel, the the physical the physical nature of Jesus, the the crucifixion, the the fact that we can trust the scriptures, the evidence for the resurrection. Those are really important for some of us. Just the way we're built. For others of us, though, that's not really um, it's not really a, as big a deal. It doesn't really rock our world to think about that. For some of us, though, it's um, maybe it's relational or social issues. Maybe it's the problem of evil. There's there's different um, different things based on the kind of people that we are that generate different kinds of questions in us. And all of those 
resources have answers in a lot of different lines. So, um, and if there's something specific that you're interested in, come talk to me. I, I probably have a book about it. Um, but yeah, good questions. We're going to take communion. Paul told us in Colossians that we have been reconciled to God by Christ's physical body. And we know that his physical body is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. But in a different sense, Jesus says that this bread and this cup are his body and his blood. And and we're invited to take it into ourselves and to receive it as a gift. A gift of, of God's heavenly life that he's working in us. And so as the, the band comes up and we sing, I just invite you to come and take the bread and the cup. There's wine or juice per the dictates of your conscience. Return to your seat and just praise the Lord for his reconciliation of you, of his bringing you into relationship with him. If you're not a Christian this morning, the, the thing is, is, is you can be. This is the project that Jesus is on for your behalf, and you are called to just decide to trust him. Say, I want that. I want new life in Christ. He freely offers it. So take the bread and the cup back to your seat. The prayer rugs are available as well if you want to um, come and kneel and pray. And we'll sing together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.